and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. What image does the word blessed conjure up in your mind? Some may think of states of mind like happy or contented. Some may think about material things, health and wealth and such. What's more important is what did Jesus mean when he described the blessed? Church planting resident Daryl Ford brings us this message entitled The Blessed Paradox, which covers Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. Thank you for joining us today. Good morning. Thank you so much for letting me come and, and be with you guys. As Bob said, my name is Daryl Ford, one of the church planting residents here at Perimeter. And let me just start by saying, I know that we just came out of the Thanksgiving holiday, which means that a lot of you have a lot of turkey in your bellies right now, which means that you might be tempted to take a nap. So I'm just saying, if you could just stay in the back and sleep, because it will throw me off if you folks down here start snoring and slobbering and all that good stuff. (laughs) Let me, let me begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, God, we come to you uh, as we break into your word, not by intellectual exercise, Father, we believe your word is living, it changes us, it melts us, it molds us. Father, we pray that you would fill us and use us, talk to us, arrest us, comfort us, console us, correct us, confront us, convict us, and convert us. In Christ's name, amen. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. That they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, among these, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, you likely recognize these words as uh, those that were coined by our founding fathers and the Declaration of Independence. Our, our fo- founding fathers believed strongly that every human being was born entitled to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Pursuit of happiness. Think about that. Who, who doesn't like that? If I were to ask by a show of hands, how many people want to be happy? The only people that keep their hands in their laps are the ones that are proud to not be a, a conformist. And they want to make me look dumb, hold them in their, in their hands. The truth is, all of us want to be happy. This past Thanksgiving, if your family is anything like mine, you had people sit around the table and everyone gave something for which they're thankful. We got together with my in-laws and, and we sat and, and we went around the table and we began to, to share those things. My, my children, if you don't know them, some of you do, they are quite outspoken. They are not shy. They will tell you exactly what's on their mind. And so when we got to, to the part of the table where my daughter was going to speak, my oldest, I was, I was kind of praying silently, Lord, please don't let her say anything that's going to embarrass me because she just says some of the craziest stuff. And so she does. We, we get around, everyone starts saying things, and people are saying kind of the classic chicken soup for the soul type stuff. And, oh, we're thankful for my family and for my job and for my car and for my house. And my daughter comes out and she says, and I'm thankful for money. <laughs> that was it. She says, very awkward pause <laughs> afterwards. But if we're honest, every one of us want, uh, we want to be happy. And we define those things quite differently. For some of you, happiness is uh, a relationship, maybe a healed marriage, maybe a relationship in, in, in our family that's been broken. Maybe it's more money. Maybe we want success. Maybe we want status. Maybe we want good health. For some of you, we want justice. We want vengeance. We've been wronged. That would make us happy. Regardless of what it is, the target feeling, 
the state of mind is the same. We want happy thoughts. We want happy feelings. We want to be happy. Now, I'm going to ask a question. Be honest. How many of you here are happier when you have ice cream? And all God's people said, of course. You're not an American if you don't like ice cream, right? I, my kids love when we take them out for ice cream. We take them out. They get a chance to pick whatever they want. They get stuff that's super gooey. They rub it all over me, and I can't get mad. They, they normally get one or two scoops, and it's just a joyous occasion for them. For many of us, we, we love ice cream. Well, for some of us, we need a little bit more than one or two scoops. That might have been the case for some of y'all on Thanksgiving, I'm sure. What we find here, I, I want you to look at the screen here. Look at this picture of a Sunday that is probably one of the most famous and most expensive Sundays around. It's called the Golden Opulent Sunday. It's served in a restaurant in New York City. And listen to its description. The Golden Opulent Sunday is covered in a 23-carat edible gold leaf and is also rich in flavor thanks to Tahitian vanilla ice cream infused with Madagascar vanilla beans and chunks of rare Chihuahua chocolate from Venezuela. This Sunday is drizzled with one of the world's most expensive chocolates from Amade Porcelana and then adorned with candied fruits, gold-covered almonds, chocolate truffles, and marzipan cherries. The dish also features a dollop of sweet Grand Passion caviar served with a mother-of-pearl spoon and a gilded sugar flower. The whole thing is served in a Baccarat crystal goblet, yours to keep, with an 18-carat gold spoon. The price, $1,000. Happiness, priceless, right? This, this is, there's no question that we know how to entertain ourselves. We know how to pursue happiness. And listen, we, we have every right to do so. This isn't a sermon to guilt you out of finding things that make, that make you happy. If you want to digest actual gold with your meal and you can do it to God's glory, by all means, do it. But my, my point here is this, our idea of happiness is not synonymous with God's blessedness. And so often we make the two synonymous. We make them the same. When I pray to be blessed, I'm praying to be happy. When I pray to be blessed, I'm praying for certain things in my life to go well. Before, uh, and, and this is actually what we see in Matthew 5. Jesus makes a distinction between blessedness and happiness. In his famous Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, Jesus begins to turn our lives upside down with some of the words that he says. And he begins in, in Matthew 5. So as you turn there, uh, I'm gonna, uh, I just want to point your attention to an interesting illustration. Before uh, 1947, there was nothing faster than the speed of sound. Pilots tried over and over again to reach the speed of sound. But what would happen is as they got closer to the sound barrier, the plane would begin to vibrate, oscillate, and the controls would become opposite. All of a sudden, uh, going up, if you were pulling back on the stick to go up, you would plunge down to your death. And no one could figure out why. They couldn't figure out what to do. They couldn't figure out how to get this plane to operate. And so, in 1947, uh, 65 years ago in October, an Air Force test pilot, Chuck Yeager, decided, hey, what if, instead of trying to operate the plane like normal, what if I operated it in an, in an opposite fashion? What if as I got closer to the sound barrier, I treat the plane in an opposite way? So in order to go up, let me push to go down. And so he did. 
And Chuck Yeager became the first man to break the sound barrier. And as he got to the sound barrier, his, the world became upside down and boom, he hits this sonic boom as a result of a counterintuitive strategy. To go up, behave like you're going down. Now, this is what we would call a paradox. The theologian G.K. Chesterton described a paradox this way. Truth that stands on its head, waving for attention. This is what Jesus does. He presents this paradox in Matthew 5. He comes in and, and, and he starts explaining his kingdom. And then he preaches the sonic boom and gives this counterintuitive principle. He says, to be blessed, we have to become poor. To, uh, to inherit everything, we must esteem ourselves as nothing. To be blessed, we must mourn. If we want to be blessed, we have to forgive those that have hurt us. In our culture, this just seems illogical. This, this doesn't make sense. But this is the mindset. This is the paradigm. This is the ethos of the kingdom of God. Webster's defines ethos as the distinguishing character or the guiding beliefs of a person, a group, or an institution. Listen, everything has an ethos. If you go to Starbucks, Starbucks has an ethos. Sports events have an ethos. The SEC championship game next weekend will have an ethos. Churches have an ethos. I, I noticed it today. Some churches, the ethos is to clap and to keep clapping during music. That's not really our ethos here, though. We clap about seven and a half times and then it's time to be done. <laughs> Which is fine. That's, that's the ethos here. But here, Jesus is unveiling the kingdom ethos. The way that we behave, the way that we think, what our greatest values are, Jesus is actually unveiling that for us. You know why we miss this? Because oftentimes when we look at Matthew 5, we look at it as an eight-step program to being a better Christian. Eight simple, happy ways to become a believer or to stay strong or to earn God's favor. This is not what Jesus is doing. Jesus is actually giving the distinguishing attributes of the kingdom citizen. The Beatitudes are not rules for admission into the kingdom. The Beatitudes are describing the attributes of those that already belong. This is something that as a believer, as a part of the kingdom, this is the way we think. This is our paradigm. This is our ethos. Now, let's quickly review what's happened already up, up, up until Matthew 5. In Matthew 1, we see Christ's birth and his lineage. In Matthew 2... We see his early childhood. Matthew 3, we see John the Baptist formally announcing the king. And in Matthew 4, we see the king's work beginning. In verse 17, Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Shortly thereafter, we see Jesus beginning his work of healing diseases and afflictions. He becomes famous. People from all over the world come to see him and to hear him. And then in chapter 5, Jesus preaches the sonic boom, turns everyone's life upside down, beginning with the words, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed. What does it mean to be blessed? Depending on the version that you're, that you're reading, some Bibles translate that word blessed as happy. And it's not an unfair translation, but it's not my favorite. Because for us, when we think about happy, we think of something temporal. We think of something circumstantial, right? I am happy because something good has happened to me. 
So that, that's the way I think. The problem is we exchange that for blessedness. This is not what Jesus is talking about when he says blessed. The Greek word that's used, that, that's used here uh, we, is actually so much deeper, and we strip it of its meaning of all we think is just temporal, circumstantial happiness. There's two Greek words that we see in the New Testament that are translated happy. The first word in, in throughout Scripture is the word from which we get the word eulogy. Those of us who have been to a funeral, we understand what a eulogy is. This is a time where people come and they speak well of the person that died. That's literally what that word means, to speak well of. My grandmother passed away uh, a few months ago. We went home back to Detroit to spend time with family, and we went to the funeral. And during the funeral, for the next three hours, folks eulogized my grandmother. Now, some of you are going three hours. Hours? That's a long funeral. Well, some of y'all have never been to a black funeral. (laughs) Because what happens when we have funerals is we rejoice, we celebrate the life of the person. And it takes a little while. Now, I'm not saying that one is worse than the other. All I'm saying is if you go, pack a lunch. Because it's going to be a while. But what we do, what, what, what happens here is when we think about what it means to speak well of, we do this, we do this often. We speak well of each other when we bless. And when you see scripture says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is, that, is in, that is within me, what does it mean? When we bless God, we're not, we're not actually doing anything. We're not doing anything he doesn't already know. We're not giving him something he doesn't already have. We're speaking truth about God back to God. When we come together and we worship, we sing truths about God back to God. We are blessing God. We are speaking and singing well of God. We do this with children. When we bless a child, what's some of the best ways we can bless a child? To affirm their growth. When they're growing, they're getting bigger. We tell them, you're just getting so big. My little sister, we talked about this at the, at the funeral. My little sister was a very outspoken child at about four years old. We're sitting in church. This woman walks over to my sister and says, you are just getting so big. And my sister looked at her and said, you're getting big too. (laughs) Now that is not speaking well. She thought, she thought it was. (laughs) This is not the word that Jesus uses in Matthew 5. He's not talking about speaking well, things uh, about which we can speak well and say good things about. Those are normally the temporal things. I can speak well about my job. I can speak well about my marriage. I can speak well about my car, my home, my children. This is not at all what Jesus is talking about. The second word that's translated into blessed is the word Jesus uses, and it describes the person who is free from the daily cares and worries of this world because his every breath and circumstance is in the hands of his maker who gives him such an assurance. It's interesting to note that in the Greek world, this word was never used uh, often to describe normal human beings. If you read through some of the philosophers and some of the Greek poets like Homer, Hesiod, Plato, most commonly they use this word of the gods, of the dead, and sometimes of the wealthy. The gods were considered the blessed ones because they were transcendent. They had escaped. They, they, were no, they didn't reside in the world of, of men where there were travails and maladies. They were far removed. Homer used this word to describe a state unaffected by the world of men who were subject to poverty, to weakness, to death. You see, to be blessed like this, you almost had to be a god in the Greek world. 
Also, the dead were considered the blessed ones. Why? Because they had escaped this world. They had finally escaped the crucible of pain, the crucible of suffering. Sadly, many people in our culture think the same way. We are searching for blessedness, but we're calling it happiness. We're not happy. We're frustrated. Nothing's going right. And we think there's got to be a better plan. I've got to escape this world in order to find what real happiness looks like. That was the Greek world. That's our world. Jesus says not so. Also, the blessed were considered the socially elite, the wealthy. This is something that's not foreign to us. The idea was that uh, your riches catapulted you above the cares of this world. Don't we think like this? We think real blessedness is achieving the American dream. Sometimes we become a Christian thinking, because I'm a Christian, now everything good will happen. Good things will come my way. But when you talk to folks at the top, they sing a different tune. Now, many, many of you are familiar with a guy by the name of Tom Brady. Tom Brady is a quarterback, the New England Patriots. He's won three Super Bowls, been to five. He's won, he's, won the, he's won three Super Bowls, the most famous and lucrative sport in our country. He's made enough money to take care of his great-great-grandchildren. And he's married to a supermodel that's even wealthier than he is. He graces the cover of fashion and sports magazines. If there's anybody who can attest to whether or not this is the true blessed life, it would be Tom Brady. And so in 2007, then 30-year-old Tom Brady was interviewed by 60 Minutes. Steve Croft was interviewing him, and he was genuinely surprised at the responses that came, the very candid responses from Tom Brady. Listen to some of the words here. Brady says, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me, I think, man, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this isn't, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. So Croft asked him, well, then what's, what's the answer? And Brady said, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. I mean, I love playing football and I love playing quarterback for this team. But at the same time, I think there are a lot of other parts about me that I'm trying to find. Why, why is it that we're searching for something a lot more than happiness can bring? You know why? Because God didn't just design you and purpose you for happiness. He purposed you for blessedness. It's vital that we see the difference. We, like the ancient Greeks, we long for something more, something deeper, some deep fulfillment beyond ourselves. So Jesus gives this sermon to people who think that way. He gives this sermon to people who think you have to be deity, deceased, or demonstrably wealthy in order to be blessed. And Jesus turns their world upside down. He says... He says, he creates a new definition of the word, which happens throughout the New Testament. They'll take a a common Greek word and just redefine it. And Jesus says that your blessedness is actually an inward contentedness that is not affected by your circumstance. This is uh, God's, from God's perspective, you are blessed because he's declared you blessed. Not whether or not you feel blessed. Not whether or not you, you emotionally or see evidence of, of, of circumstantial blessedness. God declares us blessed. Negative feelings, absence of feelings, adverse conditions, they don't demean, diminish, or delete the blessedness of the kingdom, the blessedness of God. This is the kingdom ethos. So who are the blessed? 
Who are those that are blessed according to Jesus? Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus tells us that in the kingdom ethos, we're blessed by becoming poor. Now we live in a culture that says the opposite. We're told that our happiness is contingent upon our positive self-esteem. We should love ourselves and be proud of who we are. We admire those that are proud, those that are self-aggrandizing, those that bask in the spotlight. This is certainly the case in professional sports. I'll admit it. I am made happy by football. I will probably be watching it today. And likely somebody will score a touchdown. And after they score the touchdown, they will thump their chest. They will point up to the sky as if to say, God, you just made me so awesome. And we're going to cheer him on. Yes, he didn't make you awesome. Great. Because that's a part of our culture. That's what we, that's what we praise. That's what we lift up. We're told that our blessedness is predicated on our knowledge and acceptance of self. We're told that we need to live in such a way where we live a life without regrets. I can't tell you how that phrase incenses me every time I hear it. Live a life without regrets. And I'll get to that in verse 4. Jesus turns this idea on its head by saying that we're actually blessed for an entirely different reason. Blessed are the poor. What does poor mean? The Bible uses two Greek words to describe or to, to, that's translated into poor. The first word carries, uh, carries the idea of someone who, who, who works. They're not wealthy. They, they have to work in order to meet their most basic needs. They have to work by the skin of their teeth just to meet some of their basic needs. They can't even meet all of them. But they can work just a little just to be able to meet some of their needs. This is the word that's used of the poor widow who puts, if you recall, who puts the two mites into the offering plate. That's the word that's used for poor. The idea in our culture, we would call this the working poor. That's one word. That's not the word Jesus uses here. The word Jesus uses here is a word that denotes complete and abject poverty. Complete destitution. This refers to someone who is as poor as they can possibly be. They are now relegated to the life of poverty, the life of a beggar. Jesus is saying you are blessed when you acknowledge your spiritual bankruptcy. Doesn't seem to make sense humanly. Jesus says, blessed are those who acknowledge that there exists no intrinsic resources from which I can give to God to save myself. This isn't, this isn't a, a superficial loathing or self-deprecation, okay? This isn't uh, us trying to convince people how lowly they are. Haven't you ever been, maybe you've been that person or been around that person who uh, wants to kind of seem humble. So someone will come by and ask, hey, how are you doing? And we turn on our Eeyore voice and we're like, well, more blessed than I deserve. Folks, if you have to act like you're humble, you are probably not humble. Because it's not rooted in how great we can appear or how humble we can appear. Our personal goodness will never measure up to God's standard. Our only hope for right relationship with God and belonging to God is solely contingent on God. And his grace. Folks, this isn't a one-time occurrence. Many of us, some of us may say, well, you know what? This, this, this is true. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm broken. I'm a sinner. But that was me before I became a believer. I'm a believer now. I've matured. 
I don't have to think about how broken I am now. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're thinking this really doesn't apply to me because I've been a believer for 30, 40 years. I've moved on. I've graduated. Listen, being spiritually broken and acknowledging it, this isn't like riding a bicycle. When I grew up and I was learning to ride a bike, I I acknowledged that I didn't have the skill. I didn't have the balance. I didn't have the proficiency to ride my bike by myself. So here I am at six, seven, however old I was. That makes me feel good because if I tell you I was 16 before I learned to ride a bike, you'd think I was crazy. But I'm six, seven years old and I'm trying to learn how to ride this bike. And my dad holds my seat while I'm riding because I acknowledge, dad, I can't do this by myself. But how crazy would it be if at 14 or 15 years old, I want to go down the street to my friend's house and I can't ride my bike yet. So I go to my dad, I go in his room, I say, dad, hey, um, I was really hoping to go down to Chris's house and I want to ride my bike, but you know, I can't ride really well. Would you mind holding the seat for me so I can ride all the way down to, to Chris's house? That's just preposterous. We would never do that. But that's what we say to God when we say, I don't need to keep acknowledging my spiritual brokenness because I've matured past it. Acknowledging your spiritual brokenness is not just the beginning of your spiritual infancy. This is not just the beginning of our spiritual birth. Our very maturation, our sanctification depends on it. Acknowledging this truth has always been a part of of God's kingdom. Always. Consider the words of Moses in Exodus 3. Here Moses is. He's been given his marching orders from God. And Moses says to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt? Or the words of King David in 2 Samuel 7. Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me this far? Listen to the words of the prophet Isaiah in chapter 6. Woe is me, for I am lost, a man of unclean lips. Or the words of the prodigal son. He comes home in Luke 15. And what does he say to his father? I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Think of the tax collector in Luke 18. He's standing alongside watching these other tax collectors and these other Jewish folks uh, proclaiming how great they are, bragging about how much they tithe, how much they pray, how much they fast. And as he watches all of that, you know what he says? He says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Consider Peter in Luke 5. After he witnesses this amazing miracle, he sees the, 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 the disciples sitting in the boat. They can't catch fish. Jesus allow, enables them to, to catch so much fish that the nets break. The boat begins to sink. For most of us, that would make us happy. We'd be rejoicing. What does Peter do? He looks and he says, Lord, forgive me. Be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, you might say, well, you know what? All these examples are examples of people that were around Christ, but they had not yet been indwelt with the Holy Spirit. They had not been changed yet. So that, so that's different. That doesn't, still doesn't apply to me. Well, consider Paul. Consider Paul who, who has oversaw, he's overseen the most incredible church planting movement in the new Testament. And he refers to himself how as the chief of sinners, the least of the apostles. If you were to actually do a study throughout all of Paul's letters, and you look at how he spoke about himself from year one, two, three, all the way throughout until his death. You actually see a progression of him using phrases about himself that get worse and worse and worse. 
a sinner. I'm a bad sinner. I'm the chief of sinners. I'm the least of all the apostles. That's the way he talked about himself at the end of his life. What does this mean? The closer we get to Christ, the more acquainted we become with the gospel, the more acquainted we become with the own, with our darkness in our own hearts. The more acquainted we get uh, with how broken we actually are. This is why we can sing the words, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling, naked come to you for dress, helpless look for you for grace, foul I to the fountain fly, wash me savior for I die. When we think about our brokenness, the separation that's created, We can't say anything else but those words. Are you poor in spirit? Or are you more proud of yourself? Your accomplishments. Your accomplishments as a Christian. Your identity. Your job. Your family. Your sexuality. Your ethnicity. Now this might sound like the most depressing thing ever. Like man, this is Thanksgiving. I got all kind of food in my belly and I got to hear that I'm just messed up. I don't want to hear that. But this is actually quite liberating. This actually frees us uh, from, when we think about our spiritual poverty, we realize we no longer have to live a lie. You know how much of a burden it is to keep up appearances? You know how much of a burden it is to portray this alleged virtue while stumbling, hoping that you don't get figured out? That's a prison. That's not liberty. If that's you, how is that working out for you? Because I'm telling you, you're not living in the grace of the gospel. You're living in Pharisaic fraudulence. This is not the gospel. Being poor in spirit should always lead us back to the gospel. One pastor in Portland, Artaxerdia, put it this way. The grace that preserves you in times of obedience redeems you in times of failure. Now, if I ended here then we might be tempted to say, oh, great, all right, all I have to do is just acknowledge that I'm a sinner, and that's it. All right, I'm a sinner. I'm going to keep doing it now. I'm a sinner. I can't do any better. That's just how it is. No, don't make that mistake. That's the pendulum swing in the wrong direction. Jesus covers that in the very next beatitude. What does he say? He says, blessed are they that mourn, for they will be comforted. What we're seeing here is a progression. When you read through the beatitudes, Every single following beatitude is predicated upon these two. Jesus says, I've heard people, even at funerals, they will quote this phrase. You know, if you're mourning, if you're sad, we'll say, hey, God said, blessed are they that mourn, you'll be comforted. That is not the context in which Jesus is speaking here. What did Jesus do? He just described, acknowledge that you're broken and now mourn. Well, what do we mourn over? We mourn over our sin. And this is not the kind of mourning that's self-centered. It's rooted in the gospel. In the kingdom ethos, we, we do more than just mourn the consequences of our sin. Listen, I've counseled couples where people come together and someone has maybe committed a heinous sin against someone else. And they feel horrible about what they did. They feel horrible about ruining, uh, ruining their family. And all of that is normal. That's fine. But it's still not enough. Because if all you are is sad because of the fallout because of your sin, you're still just mourning the consequences of your sin. You're mourning the fact that you got found out or your sins found you out. And now you're having to deal with the consequences. The question is, do we mourn the fact that our sin grieves a holy God? 
That's when true blessedness ensues. We don't live by the axiom, uh, the axiom live life with no regrets. That is, like I said, that bothers me more than anything else. You know why? Because if your mentality is live life with no regrets, then you're saying live a life without mourning. You're missing out on the blessedness of God because your goal is, I just don't want to feel bad about what I've done. I don't want to acknowledge that I'm really that messed up. When we mourn, we mourn the loss of our innocence. And here's what mourning doesn't look like. It doesn't look like ignoring our poverty through entertainment. It doesn't, it doesn't look like we ignore our poverty through self-medicating, through drugs or alcohol. It doesn't look like self-soothing through relationships, finding people to come alongside to, to boost our self-esteem. If you're mourning over your sin and somebody can come alongside you, pat you on the back and say, hey, keep your head up. Yeah, you bumped your, you bumped your head along the way, but keep your head up. You're doing a good job. If that's enough to console you, You still aren't mourning over your sin because the gospel should be the only thing that consoles us when we're mourning. We need to mourn to the extent that nothing else but the gospel can console. Let me prove it to you. In uh, in Paul, uh, in Paul's letters to the Corinthians in first Corinthians, uh, I mean, yeah, in second Corinthians seven, Paul responds to a letter that the Corinthians had written earlier. Quick review. What happened in the church of Corinth? Horrible sin is going on. This is the one letter in 1 Corinthians that most people say is probably the harshest letter in all the Bible. Very little encouragement, very little uplifting. Paul lights these dudes up because they have been a part of heinous sins. You've got folks that are breaking in line because they want to get more of the communion wine. You've got folks that are breaking in line because they want more of the communion meal. You've got a guy who's actually having an illicit affair with his father's wife. And Paul lays into these guys. And says, you guys are just messed up. So now the Corinthians have written a letter. We don't have that letter, but they wrote a letter to Paul saying, hey, we feel really bad. Paul, you really, our tails are between our legs now. We feel horrible about what you wrote. And listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7, verses 8 through 11. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. But also what eagerness to clear yourselves. What punishment, what zeal. At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. Did you catch that that phrase? Repentance that leads to a salvation without regret? I'm not looking at living a life without regret. I just want a salvation without regret. This This is what Paul says. He says, godly mourning leads to genuine repentance where we find our greatest comfort. Why is it vital that we always, every day, wake up in the morning starting with our spiritual brokenness? Because this is the cycle that, 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 that the way that God grows us is through this cycle. This is what sanctification looks like. We wake up in the morning and we acknowledge how broken we are. And then we mourn over our brokenness. Those first two things are what? We acknowledge, which is the intellectual response. We mourn, which is the emotional response. And then Paul says it leads to repentance, which is the volitional response. 
And we do it over and over and over again. And it's vital that we do because that's the only way the gospel can console. We think about the fact that our sin has separated us from God. And what happened? God wraps himself in human flesh, comes down, lives a life we could never live. Perfect. Dies a death we would never voluntarily die. And then resurrects to prove and affirm that we stand pardoned. How could that not be consoling? Do you realize that it's a function of God's grace that we can even repent? One theologian says that, that the worst thing, the worst thing is not a sorrowing heart, but one that is incapable of grief over sin, for you will not receive the grace of God. We mourn the loss of our innocence. Think back to Paul's word. Chief of sinners, greatest of sinners, least of the apostles. How can Paul say that? This is something I constantly look at. Paul doesn't say this in the past tense. For those of you that say, that's not me, that was me. Paul actually says, I am the worst of sinners. I am the least of the apostles. How can he speak about himself in the present tense? Didn't Paul know that he was going to be this awesome Bible character? Clearly he didn't because he's calling himself the worst of them all. How can he do that? Was he being religious? Was he being uh, artificially pious? I listened to two pastors talk about this. Uh, James McDonald up in Chicago, CJ Mahaney out in Maryland. And it's a video clip. If you can see it on YouTube, it's, it's phenomenal. And what they were talking about was specifically this phrase. What does this mean? Can we really say that? Do we, do we look at ourselves as, as the worst of all sinners? Clearly, no. I've got my stuff together, at least better than that guy. That's normally what we do, right? We want to check to see how well we're doing, so we line ourselves up against like some ridiculous dude, and he's doing craziness, and we're all, okay, I'm, I'm good. I'm not doing that. I haven't slashed anybody's Achilles. I'm good. But now what Paul says is, I am the worst. So how does this happen? Well, Mahaney and, and McDonald are talking, and they're, and, they're, and they're kind of wrestling with this, and Mahaney says, listen, I believe that I am the worst sitter I know. I believe that I am the, the greatest sinner in my own church. McDonald responds and says, no, now listen, I hear you. It sounds great. That sounds like good Bible passage. But, but how do we really flesh that out? On what grounds should you be considered disqualified from being a pastor? I mean, the people that are coming in your office, they're sharing some heinous, horrible acts, some reprehensible acts. Clearly, you're not doing that. So you can't view yourself as, as worse than those guys. And Mahaney said, you, you, you misunderstand what I mean. I'm not saying that my sins and, and, uh, have manifested themselves to the same degree as the people in my church. I'm not saying that the consequences of my sin are the same as the people that are in my church. But what I am saying is I will always be more acquainted with my own sin than I am with yours. So therefore, I will always mourn over my sin much more fervently than I will over yours. Can you say that you are the chief sinner in your house? Can you say that you're the chief sinner in the workplace? Can you say you're the chief sinner amongst the people that you call your, your inner circle? Kingdom citizens think this way. This is, what, this, is what God, this is what Jesus is saying. Acknowledge your brokenness. Acknowledge you're the chief sinner. But now mourn to the point where you become the chief repenter. Every single believer should see themselves as the chief sinner and pray to be the chief repenter. 
Do you mourn? Some of us mourn over sins that have happened against us. If you're like me, you've dealt with possibly horrible forms of abuse at the hands of people that you are supposed to trust, that you hope would love you. And maybe that bitterness is something you still hold on to to this day. And I, I'm not trying to be crass. I've dealt with, I'm dealing with this myself. But please understand that if you're mourning over other people's sins against you more than you mourn over your sins against God, you are missing out on the blessedness of the kingdom. This is how, how in the world can scripture tell us, pray for those that despitefully use you? What does he say later? Blessed are the merciful for they shall obtain mercy. How do you show mercy to someone who has hurt you, exploited you, abused you? You don't do it through this good uh, willpower that you have. Just how benevolent I am. I've just matured to the point where I can just overlook what you've done to me. That is, again, fraudulent Pharisee. What we really do is we acknowledge just how broken I am over my own sin. That I have grieved the holy God and I deserve nothing back to him. And yet he still, yet while I was dead in my sins, he redeemed me. If I live and I walk in that truth, I can't do anything else but show mercy to those who have sinned against me. Listen to me. If you are stuck in bitterness because of something horrible and you have been a victim, don't let your victimization become your prison. Because we miss out on the, on the blessedness of the kingdom. The kingdom ethos says that we look at ourselves at more, as more in need of God's grace than our victimizer because we mourn over our sin most deeply. Listen, we all, I've said this before, we all have an ethos. We all have a king. Your ethos will show who your king is. Are you like that kid playing checkers? You get to the end of the row and you, get, you finally get a checker there and now you're yelling out, king me? Or are you yelling out, king Jesus? There's a big difference. The whole reason why this, this occurs, this cycle occurs over and over again is because we begin to grow and look more like Christ as a result. We are now empowered to be able to make Christ's name famous. That's why we exist, to glorify him, to make his name famous in our lives, in our brokenness, in our sin. But it, it doesn't even end here. Because we could easily go, man, well, they, okay, that's true. I, I acknowledge that I'm broken. I mourn over it. I repent. And then I acknowledge it again. And then I mourn and I repent. I just rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat. But we find comfort in Revelation 21. What does God say? He says, he will wipe every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Folks, we mourn our sin and we find comfort in the man who lived that perfect life, gave himself a substitute to die in our place for our sins. And we or the same sins that we mourn over daily. And he promises not to leave us in our mourning. That's what we look forward to. Are you blessed? If you are a citizen of the kingdom, this is the blessedness that God has declared. Regardless of whether you feel it. We're blessed in order to make his name famous. So I'm going to close with a poem that's written by a pastor, also a recording artist. It's called Spread His Fame, and it is exactly that. We exist to be able to make the name of Christ famous. All praise to the name of the Savior who reigns. He's taken our blame, embraced all our shame. 
He's raised from the grave. So his fame, we proclaim salvation by grace through faith in his name. Jesus, the beautiful and blessed son, immutable, majestic one who was resurrected from the grave for the depraved. He paved the path for some. Place faith in his passion, son. Be saved from the wrath to come. Inconquerable, incomparable, all-powerful, unstoppable, absolutely phenomenal. No obstacle he can't navigate. He's God, and so he fascinates. With him, it's impossible to exaggerate. Lord of all continents, source of all consciousness. His compliments are the consequence of his accomplishments. Every sphere of life, he's the Lord of it. And any other power is either fraudulent or subordinate. Now, at first, we snubbed him. And now his vessels of mercy love him. Our highest thoughts are infinitely unworthy of him. Beyond vocabulary, his actions vary. His wrath is scary. And all of his adversaries are imaginary. He takes in blatant, flagrant vagrants. He breaks them, shapes them, and remakes them to hate sin. Jesus, there is no greater name that will never change. He will forever reign as we spread his fame. So all praise to the name of the Savior who reigns. He's taken our blame, embraced all our shame. He's raised from the grave. So his fame, we proclaim salvation by grace through faith in his name. All praise to the name of the Savior who reigns. He has taken our blame, embraced all our shame. He's raised from the grave. So his fame we proclaim, salvation by grace through faith in his name. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we stand in awe of your grace, in awe of your mercy, as we reflect on the fact that we, apart from you, are broken. There's nothing we bring to this equation. God, we praise you for enabling our hearts to not only acknowledge our brokenness, but to mourn over it. And that you see fit to get maximum glory from our lives by changing us and enabling us to repent. God, if we have exchanged blessedness for mere happiness, will you convict us? Give us a level of holy discomfort. Give us a desire that says we want to be jealous for your glory in our lives. It's in the matchless name of Christ we pray and thank you. Amen. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia, with services Saturday night at 6 and Sunday morning at 9 and 1045. Please visit our website for more information at www.perimeter.org. Be sure to visit the media resources section to give us your feedback and find other messages from our teaching team.